Astonishing Legends would like to thank Wondrium, Squarespace, Noom, Liquid IV, Manscaped, Stamps.com, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. When we first started Astonishing Legends, we reached out to a Latin scholar to create a phrase that we felt captured the essence of what we hope to do with this show. Invenimus Arcana. Loosely translated, it means, we've uncovered deep secrets. It's true, we've shared many of those secrets with you, while others we've been asked to keep under lock and key, at least for now. But what if there was no such thing as a secret? What if any determined and well-trained individual could access any secret someone or something might have? From a stranger to an organization or even a foreign government, why stop there? What if a person had the power to ascertain information about anything that has or will ever exist throughout all time and space? That's preposterous, right? Maybe, but if you believe any of this at all, there are people out there who've actually acquired verifiable information about things they couldn't possibly know. They're called remote viewers. Remote viewing is a technique the United States first learned about from a Soviet spy. Once the U.S. knew about it, they had to figure out how to do it themselves. And physicists Russell Targ and Hal Putoff began looking into it at the Stanford Research Institute in 1972. Eventually, the Defense Intelligence Agency created the now-declassified Stargate project in 1978 at Fort Meade in Maryland, and remote viewing became an official undertaking. In essence, for 23 years, remote viewing research units had to annually justify their existence. If they could show provable results, they would be allowed to continue. And for 23 years in a row, they did just that, right up until 1995. Of course, not all targets, and that's what they call them, targets, are verifiable. And with those, well, you have to look at the success rate of the person giving you the information and decide what to think about a target you can't even prove exists. This is where controlled remote viewing, or CRV, can provide enhanced results. Every CRV viewer's track record is logged. All of their successes and failures tracked. This information is tightly managed and coalesced into a database that correlates all targets with the results of any remote viewer's session with that target. And, in the cases where the target was verifiable, it was verified. Only a handful of people are qualified to be instructors in remote viewing. But is it real? Can it possibly work? You may have heard us say on the show before that evil doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. It is our opinion that something similar can be said of remote viewing. It doesn't care whether you think it works. We're not here tonight to prove it's real. Scott and I have taken classes in it, and even our brief experiences showed us things we couldn't explain. So tonight, we are joined by our CRV instructor and friend, Lori Williams. Lori has studied remote viewing since 1996, mentored by one of the original participants of the Stargate project, Lynn Buchanan. She was also very close with Mel Riley, who passed away in 2020, the only remote viewer to do two tours of duty with Stargate from 1976 to 1981, and again from 1986 to 1990. Both of them wrote forewords in her latest book, Boundless, Your How-To Guide to Practical Remote Viewing. Lori is now a tour de force in the instruction of several forms of remote viewing, 
but most specifically CRV or controlled remote viewing. There are no special gifts required to do this. In fact, Lori will be the first to tell you that anyone can become a remote viewer. This may be one of the strangest topics we've ever covered, but for some reason, it does seem to be effective. Let's see if we can pull back the curtain just a little bit on what controlled remote viewing is and how it works. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Although each of us obviously inhabits a separate physical body, the laboratory data from 100 years of parapsychology research strongly indicate that there is no separation in consciousness. Physicist Russell Targ. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part talk with special guest and controlled remote viewing instructor, Lori Williams. Uh, there's a package at your house. Wait a minute. Are, are you remote viewing my front porch? Uh, no, it's just that I sent you something and I, I got a confirmation. That <laughs> <it's around. laughs> okay. So that was, that's the photo that the delivery person uh, takes, right? And they yeah, send it yeah, to you. Exactly. I get it. I was going to say uh, that would be an otherwise very impressive move. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. If I tried yeah. to remote view your front porch right now, I'd probably wind up describing a porcupine <laughs> wearing a hoodie on a beach in Kamchatka or something. I'd watch that. That's, that sounds very Instagrammable. You know, we're joking around, but remote viewing is, is one of those rare things that's incredibly mysterious and interesting, but also there's a lot of fun and amusing things about trying to do it. it. It's kind of a fun discipline. It is. It, it is like any other uh, endeavor. It's, it may seem hard at first, but once you get into the groove, actually, you know what? I, I'm wrong. The first time you do it, you may be blown away by it. That's how yes. it happened to me. That's what happened, That's what to, happened me. to Scott. Unlike your first lesson in martial arts, which is another comparison we make, it <laughs> is a lot like a discipline like that where you practice, you get better at it, and you'll get skills that uh, will blow yourself away, except that the first, uh, mar we both take in martial arts classes. And yes. uh, your first class is, this is how you punch, not like that, like this. And then you right. feel like an idiot. And after, But after a while, you get better at it. Here, you learn the steps, and it's like, wow, that is much better than just me guessing. And you don't know how it happens. Yeah, well, folks, we have an amazing show about this tonight. Uh, just a couple of quick notes before we kick it off here. We have a lot of extra material relating to this topic. Go figure. Mm. Uh, it was too much for the main show. Believe it or not, we do mm -hmm. make those choices sometimes. So for those of you that are supporting us on Patreon at the $5 and above level, keep your eyes open for some of that extra content in the near future at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Okay, let's talk about remote viewing here. Uh, first thing we want to do is explain a little bit about what tonight's show is. We know folks have been on the journey of the show with us over the years, and some folks think that maybe I've become less critical mm -hmm. in some ways due to experiences <laughs> I've had since we started. No, really? I'm not going to say it. And, okay. and I guess it's true. All right. I am more of a believer than I was when we started simply because we've come across unexplainable things. Again, I'm not right. going to say it. But yeah. what I want to be absolutely clear about is that we're not coming into tonight's topic cold. That's right. This is not our first brush with remote viewing. Uh, in fact, those of you who've been with us a while might remember that way back in 2017, we actually had tonight's guest, Lori Williams, on the show to talk about remote viewing the infamous disappearance of Flight 19. Well, after that, we wound up becoming friends with Lori and her husband, Jim, and we've been in touch with her pretty much since then, and have even taken a few classes from her. 
Yeah, which brings me to my point about tonight's show. It, it's not exactly a mystery in the traditional sense of an episode of Astonishing Legends. Right. This isn't the type of topic we're coming into, imparting as much information as we could coalesce in a few hours and then trying to figure out whether or not it's real or working mm -hmm. to convince you that it's a real phenomena. We've actually taken some classes in this from tonight's guest, Lori, and even though they were the most basic beginner classes, they were convincing enough to us that something real is happening with this technique or discipline. Yeah, indeed it is. We maybe somewhere down the road, because we, we're covering this now, we might talk about the history and the, the interesting intrigue in a way with remote viewing, because that is fascinating in and of itself. But that's not what tonight's show is about. It's not about the history of remote viewing, we, although we will talk about the origins and some of the key players. But what this really is, is I think a lot of us who hear about this are like, well, how, how does this work? How can this be possible? What are the mechanisms? Well, we're going to talk about that. But here's the catch. Probably for a lot of people, even remote viewers, they can't really tell you how it works. So let's be clear. They can tell you how to do it, but not how it works so much. So whatever makes it work, though, is beyond the current scope of human knowledge and comprehension. Uh, it probably has a lot to do with uh, Russell Targ is saying the hot topic right now with uh, not just parapsychologists, the old school, but with physicists is consciousness studies. But the simple fact is, statistically, this is a real thing. And that's a conundrum because how could it be a real thing? How can you ascertain information about people, places and things you've never seen before in person? We've got no idea, but, but there is unquestionably something to it. And we're saying that based on our own personal experiences. Right. So the reason we wanted to cover this is because remote viewing shouldn't work. It, it simply doesn't make sense. And when I took the one class that I took and Force, you've taken two classes, right? Uh, well, the, the first beginner, yeah, full course. So the, the official beginner course, and then you and I have taken an introductory course, which goes yes. over the main points. And both of those, you're like, well, this is, yeah, <laughs> you want to keep going. Uh, but you're right to cover your earlier point. When he says that it shouldn't, there's also just no explanation for it. I think those who believe in clairvoyance and ESP will say, well, yeah, uh, we don't know the mechanisms for this, but I believe this is possible. And I brought this up before. What you talk about at the beginning of our opening here for housekeeping is how your mind has changed. And that has changed because of experience, direct, personal, deeply personal, deeply emotional experience. And I will say, I know a handful of people who have been told things by quote unquote psychics, but total strangers that blew their minds. And that's enough. But of course, I can't tell you how it works. No, and, and that's what I was going to say about even that class that I took that you just talked about. I was positively gobsmacked at my own results on the target that we had, had been given to practice on because uh, it bore a striking resemblance to what I had sketched and described. Yeah. I mean, some of my description was way off, but right. some of it was too close to be coincidental. And this was my first time ever trying it. I couldn't have been more green at it. It was like a magic <laughs> trick, except I was the magician right. and I didn't know how I had done my own freaking trick. And when I say that, <laughs> I don't mean to imply that it's a trick, an illusion, because that implies you found some sort of workaround and you're fooling the audience, which in this case is yourself, and you have a perfectly logical and easy to understand idea about why the trick worked. The thing here is there isn't any hidden method. It's like you're practicing the execution of a trick that works based simply on the execution. Right. If you do it right, it works. But the paradox is you'll probably never know how or why. 
Does that matter if you get the end result you want? Can you get past something we've brought up on the show before, the need for cognitive closure? Well, sure, you do it all the time, or at least some folks do. Not everyone who drives a car understands how the internal combustion engine or an electric motor (laughs) works, but they know if they get in the car, it's going to take them where they want to go. That's true and a great metaphor. But even still, with that, you know that there are a huge number of people in the world that know exactly how that works because, of course, they've built the car and the engine or electric motors. But in this case, there's no one on the planet that put together whatever makes remote viewing work. Now, what I will say is maybe there are some swamis or uh, people of the, uh, the, the ascended masters in the Himalayas or Himalayas that maybe kind of got an idea of what's going on here. Certainly, there are a lot of spiritual and metaphysical teachers who will tell you uh, what they believe. I think what you're saying here, what we're saying, is scientifically, in the lab, if you had to give a demonstration to government people, which they certainly have, and military, and they ask you, okay, this is great, that's freaking us out, how do you control this? How does this work? Well, we have a methodology, but we can't tell you where the information's coming from. That's the part that freaks people out. And to the point of having to demonstrate that this works to military and government people, as Russell Targ will say, for if you believe that we were able to put one over on them for 21 to 23 years, go ahead. But like that seems pretty unlikely that we were all able to keep up this ruse for that long to some very smart people. But what I love about this as well is that the most diehard debunkers and skeptics, if they try this, they're usually the ones who get the best results. We'll talk about that later with Lori, but I I love that fact is that there's no smoke and mirrors with this. There's nothing uh, to pull the sheet up from. There's no sheet. You you just sit at a table and you do it. So there's nothing, you know what I'm saying? There's nobody with a bare foot ringing a bell with their toes, like the old spiritualists of the 19th century. So there are only folks though, like Lori Williams or Lynn Buchanan, who can show you how to drive that car we were talking about. It's that car that's been built by something unknown. And the question is, would you get a machine that's built and operated by principles you can never grasp? Or do you have to know how it works before you can do that? Well, and that was the biggest part of my battle with looking into remote viewing, or specifically Mm -hmm. what Lori is here tonight to talk about, controlled remote viewing. I had to get past obsessively trying to understand how the hell this could possibly work and just give it a shot. And and when I did, I was more surprised at what I had done than pretty much anything else I'd ever tried <laughs> in my life. And, and that sounds hyperbolic, but I'm, mm. I'm being serious about well, it. Well, leave it to you to work a car metaphor into a non-tangible technique. Yeah, well, it's what I do. I'm, I'm a car guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's not the most baffling thing you do, sir, or the most impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Look, before we roll on part one of this discussion, we'd like to give you a little bit of background on our guest tonight, Lori Williams. Lori is a professional controlled remote viewer, instructor, and author. And amazingly, she's so much more busy than we are. It That blows our <laughs> yes, minds. Yes, she is. <laughs> I think part of that, why she's able to do all that, is because of this technique that she's mastered. She's certainly black belt level here, fifth degree. So I think that has really helped. But that blows us away, you know, because she's been on tons of radio shows, TV shows, as well as podcasts, including Astonishing Legends, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. She's also been researching, studying, and practicing the science of control remote viewing, or CRV, since 1996. That's nearly 30 years. And she was highly respected in her field, not only by her students, but by her peers as well. Her mentors are legendary remote viewers Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley, who just passed away in 2020. 
Both gentlemen were part of the Stargate project and the first remote viewers in the United States. Yeah, Lori and Lynn Buchanan regularly give free seminars that uh, we both attended online. We'll just say those are pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, she's taught CEOs, New York Times bestselling authors, celebrities, and then most importantly, hundreds of everyday people like me and Forrest. And she is currently the only certified instructor teaching beyond the advanced levels of CRV. She's used her skills assisting law enforcement in missing persons cases, advising corporations, uh, working on archaeological mysteries, or helping people make personal choices to improve their lives. And she has her own company, Intuitive Specialists, which she opened in 1999. So yeah, there's some background on Lori and what she does. Uh, you may come away from this series saying, this stuff's impossible, and frankly, I would have thought the same thing before I tried it. I don't understand it, but at this point, I'm personally determined to take it further. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of which, she's teaching a class in associated remote viewing February 8th through the 10th of 2022 that Forrest and I are both going to take, and we'll have a link to that if anyone else is interested in checking it out. It's a real class, folks. This is school, just so you yeah. know. It's eight <laughs> hours a day for three right. days in a row, and it's in the middle of the week, so it's a commitment, just like any discipline that requires right. education and practice. So if you choose to take it, be ready to do some work. Really weird work, <laughs> but but work. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. It, it is class. You get your money's worth, though, because I think at the end of it, just the mind expanding the head, the mushroom cloud coming up from the top of your head is worth all of it because it's like you've just discovered something that a lot of people don't believe exists, but apparently you just did it. So go on with your bad self about that. Well, so like Scott and I said, uh, if you're interested in that particular class of hers that's coming up, we have a link to it in our show notes on the website. But we also made a shortened, easy to remember link for it, which is tiny URL slash astonishing ARV. Uh, yes, and the ARV class is not free, but she does have other free workshops on her website, which yes. is intuitive specialists with an S on the end, dot com. But you can sign up for the pending associative remote viewing or ARV class at tinyurl.com slash astonishing ARV. Okay, so we're going to roll part one of our discussion with Lori now. We're saving our thoughts and conclusions for after the end of our talk in part two. So don't worry, there's definitely going to be some conversation about all the perspectives on remote viewing, why it lost its government funding, and some other observations we have about it overall. But again, that's going to be at the end of part two of this uh, two-part series. Oh, and one other thing, if you want to get the real backstory on the big picture of remote viewing in a very well-constructed nutshell, find a documentary on Amazon Prime called Third Eye Spies. Oh, yeah. That is, I've, I've watched it three times now. I, I, I love it. Yeah, I, love the way it's, I mean, not is it just yeah. fascinating. It's also really well shot and entertaining. And Russell oh, Targ is, <laughs> is one of the most entertaining people I've ever seen on film. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's a very well-produced, uh, well-edited documentary. Hats off to director, I think producer, Lance Mungia or Mungia. M-U-N-G-I-A. I want to give him a shout out because it's a well done, sir. Russell Targ, he wears like these Coke bottle glasses in it. He is <laughs> legally blind, which yeah. I can't think. I'm not sure if that's irony. I always get irony wrong, but he's legally blind, yet he is at the forefront of remote viewing. Also, well, that, one of the things you find yeah. out about in it, and I want to shout this out for on his behalf, is yeah. he had a huge career in the development of lasers. That's the yes. thing that he feels like he should most be known for. But he's attached to remote viewing, so and he's very into it, and he's passionate about it. But uh, he, he's a real-life physicist. He's done a lot of yes. work that's not just in this esoteric arena. So anyway, Third Eye Spies, right. find it. it. It's really, really fascinating. 
fascinating. I'm not sure if it's in that doc. Just quickly, though, what I what I learned, and uh, we've talked about this before, is that you start to see the narrative, quote unquote, that pops up. And what Russell Targ found out is that you can't really edit your own Wikipedia page. Because, oh, yes. of course, they focused on him being like, woo, woo, he's into all yeah, this pseudoscience. ISP, pseudoscience yes. stuff. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in part yeah. two because yeah. I, I really want to address that. Uh, and, and specifically the de-evolution of Wikipedia, just since we started the show, honestly. <laughs> well, again, it's following a, uh, let's not talk about this kind of narrative. And so what I'm saying here is that he petitioned, well, he, they wouldn't change it. He's like, look, I, look, I want to, I was a pioneering laser physicist. Yes. Hal Putoff was a, a phys, you know, is a physicist. As Laurie Williams will say, it's Madame Minerva in the mind reading tent with the crystal ball. It's not that. And that, but that's how it was painted. So what I liked is that he's good friends with this other very esteemed physicist that I believe was at Cambridge or Oxford. And he had to get that guy to petition Wikipedia. And they listened yeah. to him. Yeah, I think that guy had a Nobel Prize, and that's right. who Russell had to get to fix his Wikipedia page to reflect <laughs> his legitimate research as a pioneer in lasers. Right, right. Well, unbelievable. There you go. Anyway, yeah. Oh, also by the way, Lori actually appears in the last thirty minutes of Third Eye Spy. So again, check it out. It's a great overview. It'll be a good primer between part one and part two here coming up in a couple of weeks. So look for that on Amazon. This is Craig Strickland. Astonishing legends inspired me to write The Lodge at Fierce Summit, my serial on Kindle Villa. Now let's get back to the show. I wouldn't want to miss a minute. Okay, Sarah, start tape. All right, folks, we would like to welcome back to the show our good friend, Lori Williams, who is an instructor, we call her our sensei, in controlled remote viewing. Lori, you were on the show back in the spring of 2017, briefly. That was your first appearance uh, to discuss Flight 19. We had a lot of fun with that. It was a long time ago now, it seems like. But we'd like to welcome you back now because we're really looking forward to diving into what you do, what your main thing is tonight. Oh, that is so fun. The thing I have to tell you, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. Since I was on in 2017, we've become such good friends. I just feel like a kinship with you guys. And so what I love about being on the show again is it's just a continuation of our conversations that always go so far out there. <laughs> our conversations <laughs> yes. become so wild. And afterwards, I'm always just so excited from having these stimulating talks that you can't have with normal people, <laughs> if I can say that, if there is right. such a thing as normal people. <laughs> well, well, there's two aspects of it. There's what we gain from your, your teachings in this uh, discipline, you could call it, I guess. And then there's also the personal side, which is how what you do and how we experience it changes you as a person added on to what we already think is interesting. And so there's there's a social aspect to this as well, which is it's also a community of people that are like-minded in a way, are open to these ideas, and they have a lot of fun doing this. Some of your listeners may know who Mel Riley is, but Mel Riley was the very first guy, soldier, mm -hmm. who was incorporated into this newly formed psychic spine unit that the army had. And they chose him because he had already demonstrated some uncanny abilities in being able to describe, for example, from a satellite photo, what's under the tarp on the truck that's driving down the road kind of a thing. So when they said, okay, the Soviets have some kind of a psychic thing going on, they're getting our secrets, we have to come up with something to combat this or to compete 
So they decide to create this unit and they bring Mel Riley in as the very first guy in it. A lot of people think Joe McMonagle was the first one because mm. Joe's chosen three-digit number is 001. Right. But they didn't come up with the three-digit numbers till years after they started the unit and they let these guys choose their numbers and Joe chose 001. I've heard that they, they argued over who was going to get 007. <laughs> you know? but, uh, but anyway, so they came up with this. And so Mel was in there for, for the first four years. And then they sent him out on some kind of a reconnaissance thing for four years. And then he came back to do a second tour and is the only guy that was ever in the unit who served two tours of duty in the unit. And the reason I'm mentioning Mel is because you said the word fun, Forrest. And Mel said, you are going to become known as the fun remote viewing teacher. <laughs> there's, a, there's only a handful of teachers out there who are truly qualified to teach the military right. method of remote viewing. And I'm one of them. And he said, well, you're going to be known as the fun one. And that's always been something I've kept in mind because when you make it fun, the subconscious mind works so much better than when it's, you know, nose to the grindstone. This has to be really serious. You know? Right, right. Well, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. We're really here to talk about Lori's new book, Boundless, Your How-To Guide to Practical Remote Viewing, Phase 1. And we'll talk about uh, the importance of these six phases in total. Uh, but this first book, Phase 1, I just was telling Lori how uh, there are a few other how-to remote viewing guides. One I picked up early on, my, my dad actually turned me on to this by Joe McMonagle, and I think it is the Remote Viewer's Handbook. Uh, but I got to say, this book here, hands down, is the most welcoming inclusive, friendly, it's everything you want. If you are so interested in this, you, you want to get started, but you don't know how, this is the way to do it. I think it was such a welcoming read as well and fun. You inject a lot of your personal anecdotes and personal viewpoints and how it has improved your life and what it's done for you and how remote viewing can improve the reader's life and, and the student's life. Uh, in, in small ways that they didn't know. And also, before I forget this, because it's one of the great things that I learned from uh, the TED Talk from uh, Russell Targ that was on, on TED. And then, of course, they removed it, I think, because uh, it just freaked him out. But it's still out there. We can do it. We'll have a, we've talked about it before. We'll have a link to it. But one thing he said is that this is a way that you can really, in his mind, the most important thing, yes, you can find your car keys with it. Uh, you can uh, maybe do okay in the stock market. There's daily application things you can do with it. But the best thing in his mind was that you get to know yourself. That is so true. I thought that was so profound and that it's a way to really get to know who you are. It really is. You know, I um, I started a few years ago really kind of running surveys. Not, I've done a few official surveys. And then I've also done some, uh, like right now, when you sign up for the Facebook remote viewing with Lori Williams group, there's a few questions we ask, I think two, just two questions. Mm -hmm. But we really look at those answers that we get. And what we have seen that really amazed me is there's a huge amount of people who are interested in this because they want to know how to separate imagination from true intuitive ability. Mm. And they also, there's people who want to just gain confidence in themselves because they feel like I can't trust myself when I'm trying to make a decision, or I can't trust myself when I think I know what I should do. And I want to gain that confidence. And then when I've, when I've surveyed my students who've been studying with me for years, and I'm like, what would you consider the greatest benefit to this journey you've taken into learning how to access and control your intuition? And the answer surprised me because the majority of answers were greater confidence. 
Hmm. And that was not what I expected. <laughs> I yeah. didn't expect that, that to be the answer. But I was like, wow, greater confidence. How wonderful is that? If we can go from being fearful, timid, you know, intimidated, easily intimidated to being really confident and sure of ourselves, man, that's worth anything you could pay for it, you know, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have that problem. I think Scott and I do both do is we, we really second guess ourselves a lot and we overanalyze things and then we, uh, we're not really sure, wait, is this the right choice? What should I do first? I get a lot of uh, mental freeze and lockup of what's the best order to do these things in that we have to do today. So I'm thinking about myself, like going back in history, the history of our show, when we started it out, I had heard of remote viewing and I had a loose idea of it, of a guy sits in a room or, or a woman sits in a room and they look at something far away, could be in a different time, place, even planet, and they ascertain information about it that turns out to be very, very accurate in many cases if they know what they're doing. That was everything that I knew in that simple sort of definition of it. I didn't understand the differences between the different types of remote viewing, and I still don't really. I understand yours, but I know that there's other ones associative, and I, I don't know the full differences between those. But without getting too into the weeds, for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about tonight, can you do like a little bit of an elevator pitch of what remote viewing is? Oh, for sure. Well, first of all, I like to say uh, most of your listeners, I'm sure, have had some sort of an experience. And there are the few that will say, no, I've never had any kind of an, you know, and in fact, I've had people ask me, like, what if I've never seen angels or I never had a moment where I thought I knew who was calling me on the phone or I never had any kind of strange experience? Can I still learn this? In fact, I had one guy that I asked, one of my students who had taken several classes from me, and I said, if, if I could write a book that told you something that you'd never heard before about remote viewing, what would you want to hear? And he said, I wish somebody had told me that even though I've had no experiences that were esoteric or paranormal in any way, that I could still learn this. I would have taken it years ago if I'd known that. Um, so I really like to let people know that. But the majority of people have had at least one experience in their lives that they're scratching their heads over and thinking, how, well, how did that just happen? You know, how did I just mm -hmm. know Susie was going to call me? Or how did I just, you know, think about Jeff, who I haven't talked to in 40 years, and suddenly he contacts me or that kind of a thing. Or those times when you go, I, I really shouldn't get on that plane. And then the plane crashes or, you, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so I always say to people, what if those experiences didn't have to be random, spontaneous mm -hmm. experiences. What if you could actually learn to call that on demand and utilize it as needed in your life? How would that change your career? How would that change your relationships? How would that change your finances? You know, how would that affect your life if you could do that? And most people will be like, oh man, yeah, that would really change my life. You know, Henry Ford said, if I had asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> yeah. because the idea of right. a motorized vehicle didn't exist in a lot of people's minds at one point. And so I feel like CRV is the motorized vehicle for a lot of people who've never considered utilizing their intuition in a controlled fashion that will allow them to get answers when they need it. And so that's really the elevator pitch for me for CRV, which is controlled remote viewing. I also, in my classes, call it practical remote viewing or mm -hmm. PRV, but it's the same exact thing. It was developed for the U.S. military when they were finding out that the Russians were getting a lot of our military secrets. And they essentially found out that Russia had a psychic spying program that was giving them information that they couldn't get in any other way. So they said, uh-oh, 
we better find a way to combat this. We need to compete in this new arena of the mind, which is limitless. Our subconscious minds are limitless. And if you accept for just a moment, if you put aside any doubts, any questions you have for just a moment, and you say, okay, I'm going to accept that we don't understand consciousness fully. And I'm going to accept that a part of me let's call it the subconscious mind, is plugged into some great big database in the sky that has all the information that ever was and ever will be about anything in time or space. If you are willing to just for a moment accept that, then you go, okay, great. How do I connect with that part of me that is able to tap into that database? How do I connect that? And the, the issue is that we actually have a part of ourselves that's known as the lemon. And the lemon is like a tough, invisible membrane. It's a metaphorical membrane mm -hmm. that we can't get through. You can't burst through it. It's, it's impenetrable. And it separates awareness from unawareness, consciousness from subconscious. It's the thing that kind of keeps those two minds or those two part of ourselves from just openly communicating with each other. And the only way around the lemon is through the body. The body is that link. And that's why when you're driving the same route every day, for example, from the office to your house, back and forth every day, you know that route like the back of your hand. And that's why you can drive that route, pull into your driveway one day and go, shoot, I don't even remember driving those last few miles because I was thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight. Or, right. <laughs> or I was thinking about that scumbag my daughter's dating or, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Whatever's yeah. pulling your conscious mind away from the boring drive that you're so used to, you don't even think about it anymore. Then you have to ask yourself, who's driving the car when <laughs> that happens? You know, who's driving? The, the subconscious has taken over the body. So the, right now your heart's beating, your lungs are breathing. Um, billion processes are taking place in your body that you're not even consciously aware of. I like to laugh when my husband says, you know, breathing is my favorite activity. <laughs> you know, but, because we don't even think about it. But if we weren't breathing, we'd be dead, right? So, yeah. so our bodies are such an important part of the whole process between conscious and subconscious. That's why you say things like, that guy's a pain in the neck. Or uh, just looking at that spreadsheet makes my get a headache because our bodies react to our subconscious things that are happening. And so CRV is designed to help the two minds connect and form a partnership. And, and that's what the key is right there. Right. Because in the book, you use the, the lamp analogy in a general overview of how the, the process or the flow of information works. Well, the first big question everybody asks, where does this information come from? Is it the Akashic record? Is it God? Is it uh, a universal consciousness, a spiritus mundi? What, like what, what happens? But that's in your lamp analogy, where does this all play out? Or how? So the way that the lamp analogy works is I, I just kind of use this analogy to help people understand that let's say that you have a policeman who needs to know what color the kidnapper's car is, just to simplify things. Well, the policeman in the analogy would be the lamp because we know the lamp needs electricity and we have no control over the lamp's need for power to make it light up. And then we have the source of that power and I, I use a, a lightning bolt to represent that source. And we don't have any control over the source of the information either. So what we need is the only the one element that we can control, which is the conduit that connects the lamp to the electricity or the policeman to the information that the policeman needs. And so we can't control the source of the information. We can't control the policeman's need for information, but we can control the conduit and in this case, the remote viewer is the conduit. 
So the, that's the only part of this whole process that can be controlled. And it's the remote viewer controlling him or herself, not being controlled, but controlling him or herself. And this is the part that I always have the biggest question about, and I don't know that there's an answer. I don't think there necessarily is, but it's the navigational component of getting to the piece of information that you need. Because after all, if you're talking about being able to access any information in time and space, that's an infinite set of choices. And this is what's interesting to me about your process, and people should get your book if they want to understand it better. We've been through some of your classes. Forrest has done it twice. I've done it once, the basic one, which I had a I personally, a very, we're overusing the word mind blowing these days, but it was a mind blowing experience for <laughs> His me. His mind was blown, I can confirm. My he, mind he was, was blown, yeah. In a good way. And we can't talk about that target because you're still using it, right. or I would bring it up. But what I ascertained from going through that process with you surprised even me. And that was the point at which I was like, okay, because you can say, oh, I want to believe about it. But once you do it yourself, that's when you're, and you experience something like that, you're like, oh, wow, this is great. And I want to take this further. So my question to you, though, is in terms of like determining what you're viewing, this has always been the question for me, whether it's the coordinates that you sign, which you explain very thoroughly how you get these coordinates in the book, which is, was really fascinating to me for the target. I wanted to understand like when the policeman needs to know what color the car is and that bit of information is out there. Do you understand as an instructor in this field, is it more than just deciding that that's the information you need? Because it almost feels like once you've decided what you're looking for, that's all you need to find it, just that you've decided on it. You're not necessarily steering in a certain direction. When I was, I guess it was back in 2019, I felt like the public needed to be able to try this without spending any money. So I created a four-part free course that takes place over four days. You sign up for it and you take it. It's like an hour a day. And then there's an additional hour to each one of those, the Q&A that we recorded that people can listen to. So it's eight hours. And I was determined this is not a sales pitch. This is true, a true class because my goal was that people could take it and do a session themselves and experience it and say, because oh, like you said, I mean, you could watch a magician do an amazing trick and say, wow, but that's because he's a magician and it's a trick. But when you do CRV for yourself and you see how it works, then you know there's nobody, nobody's getting tricked on this one. I, I just did this, you know? Right. And so that was my, my goal in this. But when you're trying to do this, a lot of people say, how does this happen? What is the mechanism that allows us to get accurate information? Like, what is that? How does that even work? And to be honest with you, I don't think even with all the years of research that they did at the Stanford Research Institute, I don't think they ever really came up with a definitive answer as to the mechanism that works, because I think consciousness is still a great mystery. However, one thing I do know at personally, and this is my personal opinion, is that I believe the intention of the person that we call the tasker. Remember, the lamp is the, the representative of the tasker, and that's like the policeman who needs to know what the color of the car the intention of that person plays a huge role in the outcome that the remote viewer gets because you can think of us like an old wagon wheel. Think about an old wooden wagon wheel. We consider ourselves as the um, outside of the wagon wheel, like each spoke is unique and you know, I'm very unique. I have my own personality and my own this and that, but then it really at the core, we're all connected at the hub of the wheel and that's where we all become the same. We're all alike in many ways. And the hub is the representative of that. And so I feel like 
when we're all connected. That's why somehow that intention comes into play and we are able to come up with the answer. You know, I had a really interesting experience that kind of illustrates this. I had a student who um, had a daughter who was studying in Europe and the daughter was homesick and wanted to come home. So the student calls my husband, Jim, and says, I, I was wondering if Lori would do a session for me because my daughter wants to come home and I, I don't want to rescue her prematurely, but I'm wondering when should I bring her home? I know it should be sometime between right now and six months from now. And so Jim says, hey, Lori, would you like to do a session? The target is an event that will take place between now and six months from now. Describe the target. That's the information he gave me. So um, it took me a couple of days before I could get to it. And unbeknownst to Jim or to me, the very next morning, the doorbell rang at this woman's house. She opens the door and there's her daughter standing on the porch. She had taken it upon herself to rescue herself and she came home. Well, the mom's so excited to see her and, and, you know, and so caught up in the moment that she completely forgot that she had asked me to do a session on when should I bring the daughter home. So I start the session and it's a moot point already, right? The daughter's home. So there is no event that's going to take place between now and six months from now because the daughter's already home. But I start the session and I describe the daughter to a T, not knowing what I'm doing. I'm describing the daughter and I describe her situation and her health and everything. And then I move to this event that's supposed to take place between now and six months from now. And I came up with the answer of April 5th to April 12th. So I respond that the answer to the question is April 5th to April 12th. That's when this event is going to take place, which was like in three months from the time I was doing the session. And then I felt like something's wrong. I'm like, something is wrong with this target. I don't know what it is, but something just doesn't feel right about it. So I decided to move myself to the tasker's intention. Now, the tasker being the woman that asked me to do the session in this case, what was her true intention? And all of a sudden, I'm viewing this study with, I mean, it was like books, shelves, leather chairs, and a man who had salt and pepper hair, wire rim glasses, tall and lanky and thin. And then I think, oh, for heaven's sakes, I'm like way off at this point. I don't know. This, what does this have to do with this woman I've been looking at? When I got the, the dates, April 5th through April 12th, I also had gotten a sketch of some old-timey educational buildings that were that had a real European foreign feel to them, like they were not in the United States. So the woman calls me. I send her the information. I, I give it to Jim, who sends it to her. And Jim calls. And this woman calls me. And she's like, oh, my gosh. So she explains everything that the girl showed up. And she says, but I was really interested to see what you viewed since it was a moot point. And she said, in my daughter's pocket, the next thing happening in her life is she was traveling to St. Petersburg in Russia, April 5th and coming back April 12th. That's the <laughs> next event in her life. And right. uh, she said, and then also when you move to the tasker's intention, you completely describe my father and his study. And my father recently died and left a lot of mysteries that we don't, we didn't know, you know, we didn't have answers to. And that's been on my mind so much that when you moved to the tasker's intention, you started describing the next big question in my mind, which was about my father. She said, I wish you'd kept going. I could have gotten some answers, you know. But uh, I thought how fascinating to me that when that question became a moot point, that the subconscious mind automatically went to these other things just automatically. Like, what does that tell us about the universe's divine intelligence? 
I feel like there is a divine intelligence that kind of guides this thing. Because it's one thing to say, well, we're all connected and therefore all this information's floating around out there. Yeah, but how do we tap into the specific piece of the information? And I think the answer to that is that there is a divine intelligence that's cued into all this and says, okay, well, uh, let's see, this is now a moot point. How about if we give you this instead? Now? Hmm. You know, and there's there has to be some kind of an intelligence behind it. So for you, there's a spiritual connection in this process. You know, I've come to believe that there is a spiritual connection to this process. I had a, a guy that was a devout Lutheran, really devout, and had like a lot of the Bible memorized. And he was not my student. He was Lynn Buchanan's student. But I went to go help Lynn with a class one day, and I met this guy. And so he he was super excited to to meet everybody. He was excited to be in the class. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know he was a devout Lutheran until there was a moment he asked some, I think he asked a question and he said, well, how do you control this? Or how do you do what X, Y, Z? I don't remember what the question was. And I, and, and he asked me in the class and I said, well, you know, there's a scripture that says the spirit of the prophet is subject unto the prophet. You just need to control yourself. It's about controlling yourself. And he was so shocked. He was like, oh, I didn't expect anyone to quote scripture in this class. And I was like, did you think we were all like devil worshipers or, you know, what was what's the thing, you know? And, uh, and he said, well, I'm a Lutheran and everybody in my family thinks I'm really in league with the devil that I'm taking this class. And I said, no, not at all. You know, there's no conflict between this. If you think the Bible is a very metaphysical book, they were having prophetic dreams. Jesus essentially gave a psychic reading to the woman at the well in John chapter four. Um, you know, there's mm -hmm. just so many metaphysical things in the Bible that you can't possibly tell me that this is, you know, that if you are using your abilities that God gave you, which I don't consider any more evil than your ability to see with your eyes or hear with your ears, or talk with your mouth. You know, I mean, it's just an ability that we are all given. Um, and so to me, there's absolutely no conflict with Christianity and CRV. So then later this guy said, hey, I'm wondering, like, when I'm ready to prepare for a session, what should I do? And I said, well, does it feel good to you to pray and ask God to let the session be what it needs to be or to ask for protection or anything? He said, well, well, yeah, that feels really good to me. He said, I just never thought about doing it. I said, why wouldn't you? The Bible says pray without ceasing. Because you know? I knew right. that he was very Bible-based in his thinking. And I thought, why should he have a huge divide between using his abilities and his whole spiritual life? I feel that it, it does, be, it can for some people become a very spiritual process and I also feel that, like I wrote a, a blog, if anybody ever goes to my website at intuitivespecialist.com and, and looks at the blog, I have a blog called The Zen of Remote Viewing that I wrote, gosh, I don't know, many years ago. It, I wrote The Zen of Remote Viewing because I realized how in, in line CRV is with Buddhism in the sense that when you do a remote viewing session and you have no idea what you're going to be looking at, it can be a kind of an insecure place because we're so used to, like right now, you guys are sitting where you're sitting. You know where the walls are. You know where the ceiling is. You know where the floor is, right? Your feet right. are on the floor, firmly on the floor. And so that gives you security. You know where you are in time and space right now. But what happens when you're remote viewing is it's almost like waking up in a pitch dark room where you can't see your hand in front of your face and your feet are floating. You're floating and you have no idea if you're indoors or outdoors or where anything is around you. And it can be very insecure. But if you think about that as a metaphor for life, we live with uncertainty every day. You know, we just live with uncertainty. Bob Saget, the comedian, just died, right? He was only 65. 
he went to bed that night happy as a clam and died in his sleep. And so you say, okay, Bob didn't know that it was his last day on the planet. Every one of us lives with uncertainty every day. And that is like the basis of the Buddhist religion is learning to live with uncertainty, you know, and to face the things that scare us. And so I feel like CRV is a great metaphor for that in that we, every, every time we do a session, we're having to deal with uncertainty. We're having to deal with not knowing where we are in time space and what we're going to be looking at. And it can be kind of terrifying in a way at the beginning. And one of the things people come running up against is a fear of failure. What if I don't do it? What if I can't do it? What if, I, you know, people always ask me, Lori, have you ever had a student who couldn't do this? And I always say, no, I've never had a student who couldn't do it. And I know they, the first thought they think is, I'll be the first. I'll be right. the first student right. who yeah. can't do it. <laughs> and I always say, no, you won't, because everybody can do it. And they find they, they truly can do it. And then it really excites them. But it also is like, oh, my gosh, my stepdaughter, one day she had been at our house over a weekend when I was teaching. And she came down the morning after the class and said, would you teach this to me? Like, could you give me like a really brief explanation of how this works? This was way before I had the free class out. So we did a quick thing and she nailed this target. And then she went home and she tried it on her home and she nailed another target. And then she wrote me and she's a scientist. That's what, you know, and she wrote me and she said, I think I have to stop doing this because it's blowing all my paradigms out of the water. Yeah. I, I heard I heard a quote the other day that the hardest substance in the world is not a diamond, it's a paradigm. <laughs> yeah. I, in fact, I, my best friend from high school is a renowned psychiatrist. He decided to take my course. So he, and it was kind of a funny story leading up to that because I had been telling Jim for like three or four years, Jim, I would love it if we could take our motor home and drive up the East Coast when the fall colors are there mm. and we could visit Greg, who was at the time living in Massachusetts. And every year, of course, we would kind of know that wasn't the right year. So one January morning, I was heading out the door and my, our office was literally only a mile away. I was heading out the door and I said to Jim, hey, this is the year we're going to go up the East Coast in the motorhome and we're going to visit Greg. And Jim said, but Lori, how are we going to afford that? We don't have the money for that. And I said, oh, no, I'm going to get a class. I get to the office, which was literally five minutes down the road. I walk in the door, the phone's ringing. I pick up the phone. This woman says, hi, my name's so-and-so. I have a center in Massachusetts. And I was wondering if you could come out in October and teach a class at my center. And so it turned out her center was 20 minutes from Greg's house. So I called Jim. I've literally been out of the house for 10 minutes. I said, hey, Jim, we got the class. It's happening in October. It's 20 minutes from Greg's house. It's all worked out. And he was like, you are scary. <laughs> That was his response. He says, you are scary. But I didn't have anything to do with it. It was just the universe pulling yeah. it all together. So I go to teach that class. And Greg is the psychiatrist. He's in the class. And, and the, the rest of the people in the class were all professional mediums and psychics. And I, I said, that sounds like a bad joke. Like a psychiatrist and a bunch of mediums walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Greg is doing his session. And he has this amazing experience with what we call the aesthetic impact. The aesthetic impact is the moment in the session when you go from just randomly saying words that pop into your head to really experiencing the target in a personal way. And so he's moving his hands as he's talking and he's saying, there's this man-made thing and it's moving through this land and this organic natural setting and it's kind of winding its way and he's moving his hands in a curve and he's saying it's winding its way through this natural setting and it's this man-made thing that's vehicular that's transporting people 
And he's having this, you can just see from the look on his face, he's not even in the room. He's there experiencing this. And afterwards, he sees that his target is this train on a track that's weaving through these beautiful mountains. And he goes, wow. He said that, I have to convince myself that didn't just happen because I don't think I'm ready to change my belief system. He said, so I'm yeah. going to work on the next week just convincing myself that this didn't just happen, you know? Hi, this is Fred from Seattle. And when I'm not fangirling over Astonishing Legends, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. In having students, you know, everyone can do it. You can teach everybody to do it, which is something you hear from not just you, but you, the instructors that you are your mentors and other folks that are out there. Uh, we've mentioned on the show before, Third Eye Spies, a, a fairly recent documentary, which you're in, that's really fascinating if folks want to get another big picture. Also for those folks that are like, well, where's the proof? Just watch the movie. It's just, there's so much in there about all the successes that it's had over the years. But uh, coming back around to the spiritual question, you certainly must have had students that are agnostic or possibly even atheists, and they are still having success with the program. Oh my gosh, yes, totally, for sure. So that's not a requisite for success in it, is your belief in Christianity or Buddhism or any particular religion. It works because it's a process outside of that, but but you feel like those things can go hand in hand as well. For sure. I had a student once who was from China. He was atheist. He came to the United States and ended up going to MIT. And then he created a a computer company that became very successful. And uh, he came to take my class and he took it one-on-one with me. And uh, this was many years ago. And he said, man, if I learned how to do this, my family is going to be so shocked because I am 100% left-brained. I don't have any right brain abilities whatsoever. The first day of class, I was teaching him and I said, okay, well, let's say that you're getting ready to start your session and you're concerned that your wife, Alice, is going to call in the middle of the session. And he goes, wait, wait, how did you know my wife's name was Alice? And I said, is, is your is your wife's name really Alice? He said, yes, my wife's name is Alice. And that freaked him out right there. That right there was like, oh my gosh, you know. So then he ends up doing having great success. And again, he's atheist. He thinks he doesn't have a right brain gene in his body. He thinks he has no psychic ability. And he did great in the class. So, and he, he sure was a believer when he left. That's, I mean, he was a believer that something is definitely, there's definitely more to life than just what we see and touch every day. There is more to reality. And I tell you guys, once you open your mind to the idea that reality is more than you think it is. One night I had a dream, we'll call it a dream. I don't think it was a dream, but I'll call it a dream. (laughs) I had a dream that somebody snatched me out of my body and had their arms wrapped around my midriff and they, they were behind me and we were shooting out into outer space and then suddenly we're shooting back towards the earth and we're coming really fast towards the earth. And I'm seeing trees coming at me really quickly and they're way below me. And suddenly those arms let go and I'm falling and I'm thinking, Oh, I'm falling. You know, this isn't going to be good. And the next thing I know I'm falling up like up towards the sky and the trees are above me hanging in the sky and I'm going the opposite direction. And I hear this voice say, reality is not what you think it is. And suddenly I'm wide awake sitting up in bed. And, oh, wow. and, and so it said, reality is not what you think it is. And I've never forgotten that because we have had many reality defying moments, Jim and I have together. And when you have it with another person or with a group of people, 
you kind of go, okay, so it's not just me losing my mind um, because, you know, we are <laughs> either we're all experiencing a mass hallucination or reality isn't quite what we think it is. Jim and I were watching TV um, about a year ago. We're watching a program. It was January 6th, the day that the Capitol was stormed. It was that night. We decided to watch um, a documentary by a man we know and by whose book we had purchased by Charles Hall called Walking with the Tall Whites. We decided to watch this documentary and we're talking about Mel Riley, who passed away last year. We're watching this documentary and we're, we're seeing everything in the documentary and we're talking about Mel at the same time. And January 6th also happened to be my father's birthday, who died in 2004. And so we're sitting there watching it and, and uh, all of a sudden a chair in the room just lifts up off of onto two legs, tips to the side, and then gently lowers back down onto all four legs. And Jim looks at me and says, did you see that? I said, I did see that. Did you see that? He said, I did see that. And then we just went back to watching the documentary like nothing <laughs> happened. You know, another night we were watching on our laptop, we were watching a movie at the dining table because it had been a cloudy day. We live off grid and uh, we didn't want to use all the electricity that the television uses. So we were just streaming something on the laptop and Jim had his glasses on the table because he doesn't need glasses to see the, the laptop, which was pretty close up. Suddenly his glasses begin hopping across the table by themselves. And I said, Jim, Jim, your glasses are hopping across the table. <laughs> and he leans over at me so he can see them. He leans, he kind of leans over and sees them. He goes, well, I'll be damned. They are. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and we just keep going like nothing happened because this kind of thing, especially with this kind of physical manifestation, mm -hmm. just has become kind of a normal thing. One day I walked into the laundry room and there was, and this was in uh, Amarillo, Texas, and we had this laundry room and we had been having a lot of really strange phenomena happen in this house. I walked into the laundry room and this brand new thing of, of laundry soap that had the spigot on it, one of those big heavy ones. Yeah. We had just bought it, just put it in the laundry room on the little table in the laundry room. That thing lifted up in the air in front of me, spun around, and then landed gently on the ground in front of me. So I called Jim, my husband, who's a scientist. He was a forensic scientist his whole life. I'm like, okay, can you explain to me within the laws of physics how this could just happen? He's like, there's nothing in the laws of physics that will explain that. So, right. you know, I think there's a lot of mysteries. And the one thing you can never lose is your sense of wonder and amazement at the great mystery, because there is a great mystery. We're surrounded by it all the time. One of the questions that I had, and I'll never get to all the ones that are on that I've written down before we're talking today, but one of them was about uh, ghosts. And I also think about morality. From what I'm taking away from the very little bit that I've been exposed to your classes and how CRV works is that the, that's not really a factor because people come to you and say, okay, well, I can remote view. How come I'm not remote viewing the lottery or, or like Russell Targ did with Silver Futures or whatever? Why aren't we figuring all this stuff out? And so then I begin to wonder, and I know because I've talked to you about this before, that you do try to ascertain if you have a professional paying client, because you do this professionally, you get paid for it, you have these amazing teams of these high-level black belts and all this, and the people come to you and they pay you and they say, I, I need to know if my company should go this direction or that. You try to make an effort to make sure that you're not being tricked into espionage or something like that, right? So is it, is it all on the, the viewer's point of view there? And have you ever, during this process, uh, because then again, you've also said, for the people who do this relating to crime or trying to find somebody who was kidnapped or solve a crime or something, and then that can get really dark. And I've heard you that you warn viewers who do that kind of work that it takes a certain temperament. Do you ever encounter 
this darkness in the process, or is it is it more about the people on the uh, at the end of the process and the and the people doing the viewing? And what happens if someone says, "Okay, you know what? I'm just gonna I want to win the lottery over and over for personal greed, so I can buy an island and tell everybody to screw off." How does that all work when it comes to <laughs> CRD? That, that's a pretty big question. There, that has a lot. I know. Of well, that's, I tried to it. get it into you know we only have so much time, so. <laughs> Here's my take on all that. Um, first of all, if you go into your backyard and you find a golden ring, and this is an analogy that Lynn Buchanan has on his website at crviewer.com. But if you walk into your backyard and you see a golden ring and you pick it up and it's 18 karat gold, let's say it's worth a thousand bucks. You're excited and you tell everybody, I found this gold ring in my backyard. It's worth a thousand bucks. You're really excited, right? Now, let's say you go into your backyard and you dig a hole and you find a treasure chest that's worth a billion dollars. Are you going to tell anybody? No, uh, of course you're not going to tell anybody, <laughs> right? Yeah. I wasn't prepared to answer right? on the record. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you're not going to tell anybody because it's going to, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, no, I'll become a target. Everybody will think that I am the goose that lays the golden egg and then uh -huh. I'll never have any peace in my life. And so you don't tell anybody. And that analogy really does explain why people don't hear about people winning the lottery all the time, because I do know some remote viewers who've won the lottery and they don't right. want anyone to know that they did that because then people, you know, it's hilarious. Lynn and I both get emails from people saying, Hey, if you give me the numbers to the winning lottery, I'll share it with you. And Lynn's always <laughs> like, well, if I want, if I got the numbers for the winning lottery, why would I share it with you? You know what I mean? It's like, what benefit is there to me to share it with you? Right. Uh, we, I teach a class called associative remote viewing which is the class that people want. And the last time, the last few times I've taught it, um, I always, there's this portion of the class in which I teach everybody how to find a winning scratch off. And then we break for lunch and they go use that technique. And they've been coming back like winning $450, winning $100, winning $70, winning $200 or $300. And it's been amazing. And people are like, oh my gosh. And of course, you know, we have to be careful because we don't want to say, hey, you are guaranteed that you'll win money if you use these techniques. But I, I mean, one of my students went and, and uh, won the Triple Crown. He bet $40 at a casino on the Triple Crown. He correctly said who was going to be first, second, and third place. He won $1,400. So these techniques really do work if you use them and if you practice them. Now, every now and then somebody will take the class and go, I want my money back because it doesn't work. And there's calling like uh, a month after they did the class and they haven't practiced once or done anything with it. And they're like, you know, it doesn't work. Well, no, it's because you don't want to practice and you don't want to really use it. But I, that's one of the reasons I actually even though I'm getting ready to teach that class, I think in two weeks I'm teaching that, that class. And I have people, that's the class that's in the highest demand because it's associated with money. I like to think of it as techniques that can help you make better choices in your life and make better decision-making. It's not just about money and winning the lottery or the horse races or things like that. However, people who are really money focused, like Scott just said, here's the guy who wants to win enough money to buy an island and tell people to, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but really in this class, you know, you definitely learn techniques, but I really don't like classes that attract that sort of person. Mm -hmm. And I've, yeah. do, I've seen, you know, I know all the teachers out there and I've seen that different teachers attract different types of students. It's very interesting. Right. And the students I attract all tend to be really heart-based people who want to use this to help others and, and things like that. So they're not extremely money 
focused. And they often take the ARB class because it gives you a lot of great techniques for fast answers when you need them on which elevator door should I stand in front of when there's 600 people trying to get up to their room in a 15 minute break at a conference. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that right. sort of thing, which grocery line should I get in that will get me out of the store faster? Which job should I take um, that will provide me with the greatest happiness or whatever? So it teaches all kinds of really useful techniques that are not money oriented. But it also, of course, is mostly used for money. And so that class, again, is coming up in two weeks. But I, I feel like I feel like at the same time, um, I hope that heart-centered people will take it and, and will utilize it for the really good things. Well, thank you. I'll see if I can clear yeah. my account. Well, it's, um... <laughs> it's, it's like when people, because uh, we've had that question before from uh, some loyal listeners who are good friends, but, you know, of a skeptical mind. And they, they pose that question, too. It's like, well, how come there's, you know, not everybody's winning the lottery? Well, first of all, yes. You wouldn't announce that. Uh, I believe even Lynn says, you know, there was a guy who uh, he was associated with, and, and I think you as well, who was doing really well, was very gifted. Uh, you didn't hear from him for a while. He turns up after a long absence and uh, just, just to say hello, and he drives off in his new Ferrari. It was a Lamborghini. It was, it was a, Lamborghini. a Lamborghini. It was a Lamborghini. <laughs> it was a Lamborghini, yeah. And that's all you have to say. It's like, hey, well, all right. It's, it's, uh, we know what's going yeah. on. Uh, yeah, and then people are like, oh, why isn't he telling everybody he's doing that? It's like, well, yeah, that's probably not what you're going to do. Yeah, there are different aspects of it that seem to draw different people. And with your book and also Joe McMonigle's, the idea that it's a lot like the uh, practice or discipline of a martial art comes up a lot. And that that's you have to practice it. It's a discipline. There are techniques. You can get better at it. Of course, some people will be better than others. Uh depending on how much they practice and their natural ability, but anybody can do this. But it's also, when people say that, it's like, well, look, if you became a black belt, you were of true spirit, would you go around just beating people up? Because you could. <laughs> Scott and I have both uh, practiced martial arts uh, in the past. And one thing you learn is that it's about control, respect, and the, the fact that you don't go, it's a defensive technique. You don't go beating people up just because now you can do it or showing off your abilities. That's not what it's about. If you've learned it, Properly now, there are people who, of course, do. Uh, the, the whole Cobra Kai, <laughs> Sensei Crease, yeah, totally. That guy beats everybody, right? Up just so, for fun. so uh, you know, there are those that that do it. When I think of uh, remote viewing, it may be unfair to characterize uh, him and his students this way, but I think of uh, Edger, Major Ed Dames, who his angle was really about. There's some upcoming major disasters, and I think maybe he appealed more to the prepper type crowds who were. Like, well, what are we going to do about this? And, and uh, well, I have a six-set DVD set and, uh, and books you could find out all about this. And that was kind of his angle. And I don't fault him for that. But that was, you know, I guess, it wasn't his nickname Major Ed Doom also? No, it was, it was Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom. Because that was his angle and that we can use this technique to find out about the bad stuff that's coming up and what are we all going to do about it. And I have some ideas and that's why you should take my course. I guess, would you find that uh, to be the case in that the type of people that take it, they, yes, they all have their different reasons, but it is like a martial art in that it is kind of what you do for with it and the creed of it would be to use it for good. Exactly. And the thing too is that, you know, one thing, Mel, Mel and I used to have really deep conversations about this. And he said that, you know, in his eight years of working with the military unit and remote viewing, he said people who came in and had money as their main objective, 
never became world-class remote viewers. They never mm. got, they didn't have the depth that it takes to get the spiritual, just like their spiritual aspects to martial art and yoga. Right. They didn't have that, that they were missing that element. And yeah. so they only got like, you know, you can do, you know, downward dog and, and you know, yoga poses all day long without being spiritual about it. Right. Right. Uh, and, and you can take a martial art and just learn the, the different movements without being spiritual. But those who add in the spiritual elements with their sensei or or their teacher, or their yoga master, or whatever, they get a depth of practice and ability that others miss. They learn to use their chi, for example. You know, you could throw someone across the room just with chi. You know, but uh, a person who who goes into it and just learns the the forms without learn, adding that spiritual element is never going to learn to really harness the chi, and that's truly speaking about martial arts. But CRV is the same because the more you go deep and you learn them, there's so many levels to CRV. For example, the guy that I hired to be the executive director of my company. Pavel Trela. He's from Poland. He's been living in the United States for 20 years. He came and took his first class with me. We were, we, I held a class in Los Angeles that was at this mansion, this beautiful mansion in the Hollywood Hills surrounded by movie stars. Um, I think Will Smith was a neighbor. Tom Selleck was a neighbor. And so this guy came to take the class there. And just from the questions he asked, as a brand new student, first day, Jim and I looked at each other and we're like, this guy, really gets it. I mean, he gets it on a level that most students don't get right away. I mean, it takes a long time. And um, you never stop learning, of course, and there's no ceiling to your abilities, which was a point at which I realized after 11 years as a remote viewer, I did a session on Mars. The session was on Mars. I write about it. There's a blog in my website that's called 18 Years of Excitement, and it's the stories of some of the most outstanding sessions that happened. But this thing that I did on Mars, it caused like a whole new level of remote viewing for me. I had a thing happen during that session that just like just opened things up. I thought I had reached, you know, a plateau and I would never get any better than I had reached at that point. And then when I suddenly, boom, it like broke that glass ceiling and I was up on a whole new level. And I was amazed by that. And that also opened up my awareness that there's a lot more to reality and, and to the beings that we share space with that we can't always see. That you know, interdimensional beings or transdimensional beings, whatever you want to consider them, that we definitely share space with other elements that we maybe don't see because we are not in the same dimension, but we happen to be in the same space or in the same moment of time. It, when I came into CRV, I was a fundamentalist Christian that believed in a very binary system of heaven and hell, God and the devil, you know, that kind of a belief system. And it was through remote viewing that my whole belief system expanded. And I realized that the great divine, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, is so much bigger than I had, my, had had in my finite mind. And that if there's a God, God is the God of not just this planet. God is the God of all the universes, all the dimensions, whatever is out there that we discover, you know, through um, consciousness. And I started getting information through some of my remote viewing sessions that are now being proven through quantum physics. And there are books being written about them, books like The Grand Biocentric Design or You Are the Universe that are being written by physicists who are saying, hey, look what we're discovering. Consciousness is a new frontier. I've been saying that for 20 years. Consciousness is the new frontier. And we're going to find that consciousness is a key to, for example, I have experienced unidentified flying objects that were I was tasked to view and I was blind. I didn't know what I was viewing. I did not know that it was a UFO. But uh, I have found that 
vehicles that are powered purely through consciousness. Yeah, that's how they're powered and steered and controlled. Oh. And so I really do believe that uh, consciousness is something people, as, as we continue to discover more and more, we're going to find solutions to some of the planetary issues that we're discovering right now that will be, the consciousness will be the answer to. I've been really fascinated by Elon Musk lately and listening to some of the things he says. And I think he's kind of tapped into that, that we're going to be discovering that there are solutions that we can find that are not the obvious ones, that we have to look beyond that. Once we, we move beyond the, the obvious and the ordinary, we're going to find solutions to a lot of things that we think right now are going to be our doom, so to speak. I don't think they have to be our doom because I think all we have to do is reach critical mass where 1% of the population realizes, hey, I think the answers might lie in consciousness and expanding beyond our, our finite brains and accessing answers from sources that we've never considered. And that will cause a, a tipping point where we're going to find a, a, a much greater hope in the future than we have right now. And that's why Dr. Doom I do not personally know Ed Dames. I've never met right. him. Um, and I never want to say anything or diss anyone. Sure, sure. Uh, but I do want to just say that um, I've gotten letters from people who are scared out of their wits. One of the predictions was that there would be a canister of plant pathogens that would be dropped on the planet. I think the prediction was in 2011 or something, and it would destroy all life on the planet. And of course, thankfully, 2011 came and went, and that didn't happen. But there were people who wrote me because they were terrified, really scared out of their wits about this. And they thought it was going to happen any moment. And could I please, I'll pay you any amount of money. Just tell me where my sanctuary will be that I'll be safe. And I found that that very disheartening. And, and uh, I wrote, a, I wrote a, a blog called, Are Fear Pathogens Eating Your Brain? <laughs> because, because I saw people that were literally having their quality of life greatly diminished out of fear. And fear is a horrible emotion that is hard to live with on a constant basis. It's very, very hard on your body and it totally saps all the joy out of life. And so we fear that which we don't understand and oftentimes we fear that which we're afraid might be might happen you know and i used to i used to be fearful as a mom of i had given birth to seven children and as a mom you know children are always looking for death you know they can stick a <laughs> they can stick a pin in a light socket and blow themselves yeah. up you know they can roll off the bed or whatever and so i was always afraid something's going to happen to my kids and thankfully they're all still you know well and alive and adults of, with families of their own now but at the same time, you know, I realized a lot of the fears I feared never came upon me, thankfully. And why did I waste hours of, of what could have been joyful worrying about stuff that hadn't happened? You know, so that's why I, I like to tell people if you focus, I think if we have any control over our reality, and if reality is malleable, which I believe it is, then let's focus on what we want it to be, rather than focusing on what we're afraid it might become. You know, create the world we want, always imagine the world you want to see rather than what you're afraid it could become any moment. Hi, greetings from Northern Sweden. I'm Louise Beek, and this is Astonishing Legend. Let's get back to the show. Take us through how the process of a session actually works. Sure, People, yeah. I think it's still a mystery to them and don't understand what you actually do in a session. As you say in your book, it's it's not Madame Minerva with the, with the crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, talking about this spiritual aspect uh, of it, is there any relationship to other practices like scrying, 
which people tend to shy away from. Usually, if you have a fundamental point of view, let's say it's frowned upon in the Bible, you shouldn't be fortune-telling or associating with people who do. And when we see it from just even a non-religious aspect, it's probably best not to dabble in that because you don't know who you're talking to. It's like hitchhiking. So to your view, sometimes your tasker, the monitor, may not even know what the target is. Uh, sometimes they do, right? But it could just be a set of numbers. And Hela Hamid was able to nail nine targets successfully, and she was a very non-technical person. She didn't even know what they were, were They brought her about. in to be a control with zero yeah. experience. Yeah. They brought her in to yeah. be a control because she had no psychic ability, apparently. Right, and, and she, she <laughs> thought it was amusing as well. My point is that somebody who doesn't know anything about GPS coordinates can be given a set of numbers that's sealed in an envelope. Nobody knows what it is except the initial task or somebody who put the, the numbers down to a coordinates to a specific location. And the monitor or the tasker just knows that there is a target in an envelope, doesn't know what the numbers are. The viewer, who knows nothing about GPS coordinates, those numbers wouldn't make any sense. They wouldn't even know what, what hemisphere that was, can nail this target just based on numbers and an intention to find this location. How does that happen for that to be possible? I, you know, that is uh, amazing. Uh, let me give you an example. So as far as the technique that we use, Mm-hmm. A person is going to sit down at a at a table with a little stack of like regular eight and a half by eleven, or if you're in Europe, A4 paper uh, that you would put in your printer. Same kind of paper. We um, I usually recommend that it do, you use blank white paper that doesn't have lines in any way on it. And then they're going to do a little process that we call the administrative section, where uh, they're going to kind of write down some data about you know who they are what they are doing where they're where they're viewing and the circumstances because you can look back over 50 sessions and go you know I do my best work right after a workout or right after I meditate I do my worst work right after I eat or whatever you know you'll be able to see patterns uh, so the admin section is kind of a little record keeping place in the upper right hand corner of the page and we also teach them a, a three-step process to set aside anything that might be bothering you. Like if you had a fight with your boss yesterday that's really bugging you, it can be hard to remote view if you can't set that aside. And I actually teach this method, again, in a blog called Three Steps to Set Aside Anything and Get On With Your Life. It's in the blog section at my website at intuitivespecialist.com. And they can just go in there and learn this. It's And I've had students tell me that their kids have gotten in better grades because they learned how to set aside test anxiety using this three-step process. Once you've done that, it's like, okay, now I'm ready to remote view. Then you just move over to the other side of the page. You write down whatever numerical uh, or alphabetical coordinates you're you've been given for this particular target. If you're pulling them off my website, we have a free bank of targets on the website. You just write those six numbers down um, that are there and you can just quickly do an ideogram, which is essentially a scribble that comes from your subconscious mind. You scribble this this thing and then you go through a process that we call the AB process where you're you're writing down the, the motion your pen took on the paper when you did the ideogram, the feeling that you had as you did the ideogram, and then you write down the B section, which is we call the wag, the wild ass guess of what you think that squiggle represents. And we've, we start out by teaching you seven basic overall concepts that we refer to as gestalts that are land, water, man-made, natural, space, air, motion, energy, and biological 
anything that's living or has had life. Those are the seven things. So this is like a speed course in, in, in uh, yeah. trigonometry, right? Yeah. yeah. You're doing great, though. <laughs> We're doing a speed course in trigonometry. So that is essentially phase one. You get these basic overall concepts. So let's say that you do phase one and you come up with land, water, man-made, and biological. Then when you move into phase two, you're going to move to each one of those things and do let free flow of consciousness out, just kind of telling you, okay, what are some descriptions of this man-made? What are some descriptions of the land? What are some descriptions of the water? And our mantra that we repeat all the time is describe, don't identify. The nouns you're going to come up with are suspect because nouns name things and they come from the left brain. It's the part of your brain that keeps you alive as a species when the saber-toothed tiger is about to eat you and you suddenly say, it's, yikes, saber-toothed tiger, and you run away. Right. That's the part of your brain that names things. But when it comes to psychic ability, the part of your brain that describes things is the psychic part of your brain. So we set aside onto the right side of the page any the naming words, nouns that name things, and we put on the left side of the page any words that describe. So you'll move to the man-made and describe it. You'll move to the land and you'll describe it. You'll move to the biological and you'll describe. You'll move to the water and describe. And then uh, while you're doing these descriptions, other information might come to you. So just as um, human nature is, you generally tend to start with sensory information, colors, uh, luminances, like how bright or dim something is, taste, smell, sounds, textures. Then you'll move on to dimensional awareness, like it's big, it's round, it's cylindrical, those kinds of you know, shapes, sizes, patterns, positions. Then you start getting conceptual information. It's political. It's fun. It's touristy. It's educational. And that sort of information will start coming to you. Then you'll have what we call the aesthetic impact, where you're suddenly like, wow, this thing is a lot taller than me. Or, wow, there's something off to my right. I liken it to being like in a dark room, waking up in a dark room, not knowing where you are. Somebody hands you a little tiny narrow flashlight with a very narrow beam. You wildly wave it around trying to get your bearings. Because, you know, of course, as humans, our first question is, am I safe? So you're waving it around wildly, but in your panic, you might notice there's something red, there's something round, there's something rubbery, but you don't know where they are. And you might think, oh, well, if it's red, round, and rubbery, therefore it must be a ball. But in reality, the round things to your left, the, ru the rubbery things above you, the red thing is to your right. You know, you don't know because you're just sort of what we, doing what we call winking about the sight. But once you suddenly get your bearings and you go, oh, I get it now, that round thing is off to my right, that's the aesthetic impact because you're relating to the target in a personal way. And it's often, not always, but it's often a spatial relationship. And it's always accompanied by some sort of an emotional reaction. Like, I'm really surprised. I didn't, I didn't know that thing was off to my right. Or, wow, I'm really curious. I want to know more about it. So once you've had this, you know, you've gotten to the aesthetic impact part of the session, now you're ready to start sketching and you can start sketching that round thing or that rubbery thing or whatever. And you can sketch and you can get information from those sketches. You can touch the sketches and get more information about them. And then you can then move on into getting more and more detail, greater and greater amounts of information. And there's just no end to it. You can just go dive deeper and deeper and deeper. 
you know, like, okay, my target is this cup. I'm moving to the cup and describing the cup. Now I'm moving to the factory where the cup's made. Now I'm moving to the owner of the factory. That, that you know, I'm, you know, and you can just keep going forever and ever. This sounds like how we do our research. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing leads to the next rabbit hole. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a really, really short description. But one thing I wanted to share that's kind of been a recent revelation for us. I now have thousands of students, right? I used to have, you know, teach one at a time and then, I would then a full class was like four. You better not have more than four. You know, now, uh, no, now I have thousands of students between those who take the three day live courses that I teach and those who take the six week video courses that I offer. But uh, what I'm discovering is that just as we know that their babies have a path of development, like you know that when the baby's X amount of old age, they should be lifting their heads by themselves. Then when they should, there's a certain point which they should start rolling over. Then there's a point which they start sitting up. And then there's a point which they start pulling themselves up on things and standing and then walking, etc. right? Those are milestones in a baby's development that we look for as indicators that the, this is a normal baby's development. We're finding the same thing with remote viewers. There are certain milestones that every remote viewer experiences. And some of those are pleasant. Some of those are not so pleasant. Like slumps, for example. Slumps are true in anything you try to learn, whether you're trying to learn the violin or the piano or martial art or yoga or whatever. You go through periods where you kind of have a step backwards. You go you know, two steps forward, one step backwards. It's the same thing in remote viewing. Students will go through a period called a slump. And we've discovered that what happens when the slump occurs is that something's getting worked out on a subconscious level. And you might not even be aware. It's subconscious, so you're not aware of it. Uh, subliminal, below the liminal. Below the lemon, you know, is when people are having this experience and they don't even know what it is, but once they burst through it, they are be remote viewing better than they ever had in their lives. And they've also worked something out on a personal level about something. Maybe it was when you got unfairly disciplined at five years old for something your brother did. You know what I mean? It could be something way deep in your psyche that's gotten worked out that you now have a resolution for. And so slumps are really important. But what used to happen years ago when I was taking classes with Lynn Buchanan is students would take basic and then they would encounter their first slump and they would just go, well, I guess I can't do this. And they would quit. And so a very few students would go on to take intermediate or advanced, whereas now a huge percentage of people are going all the way through to becoming professionals because we explained to them on day one, you're going to have slumps. <laughs> and this yeah. is part of your, this is a natural part of your development. And it's a great thing. It's a really good indicator that you're making progress. So when they have the slump, they go, oh yeah, Lori told me this was going to happen. I'm rolling over for the first time, you know, <laughs> in my crib. Right. And right. it's a milestone. And so we're now able to actually plot out these milestones and see when remote viewers are going to have them. And it really helps them deal much better with some of the things that feel like they're setbacks, but they're really not. They're really milestones in development. Have you given any thought to like what there might be an evolutionary reason for the way that our mind and the lemon works, uh, subliminal, you know, the conscious and subconscious and why there's that division and why you have to do so much work to get information from one side to the other? Uh, my, per I'll give you my personal opinion on this. I, you know, and this isn't, I don't have any, any data to back this up, but we know that children are primarily walking around in the subconscious with the subconscious dominant. And then as you age, the subconscious steps further and further into the background and the conscious mind steps forward. We do know that 
the conscious mind is like a tip of the iceberg. It's like 0.001% of who you truly are. And 99.99% is um, happening below the hood, you know, under the hood. And it's really ruling the roost, but we don't think that's ruling the roost. We think that little tiny bit of our conscious ego is ruling the roost. Um, I think for survival reasons that we're designed so that the ego kind of rears up and takes more control and the subconscious steps back just so that we can go out and hunter be hunter gatherers and or or build a business or you know work at a daily job or whatever and provide for our families and things like that whereas babies don't have to worry about that right toddlers and children they're carefree they can run around in the subconscious mind and they are like bumblebees who don't realize they aren't supposed to be able to fly because they're not aerodynamic <laughs> at all. That's how children are. Um, my kids did amazing feats and uh, they'd probably be really embarrassed if they hear this. I don't think they will, but, <laughs> but if they heard this, they'd be embarrassed for me telling these stories. But for example, I don't know if you've heard of a radiometer. It looks like a light bulb. It has little flags mm -hmm, inside mm -hmm. of it that are black and white. Yes. And my youngest son, literally, I mean, we could sit in a very dim room with no folk, no source, light source. And I'd say, can you make the flags go this way? And he would look at the thing and just make the flags spin one direction. And then I'd say, can you make it stop and go the other direction? And he would just look at it, and make it stop and go the other direction. Was he exceptional because he could do that? Not really. I think all children can do things like that. We would play a game called the Skittles game, where we put a big bowl of Skittles in the middle of a table. We'd have a group of children because we always had tons of kids around. We also had our nieces and nephews growing up with us. We'd blindfold one of the kids. They'd stick their hand in the bowl of Skittles, pull out a Skittle, hold it in their hands, blindfold it. And then the first thing we would do is say, can you feel whether the color is hot or cool? Is it a hot color or a cool color? And they'd say, oh, it's a warm color. And it'd be like orange or yellow or red. Or they'd say it's a cool color. It'd be purple, green, or blue. So, of course, they got to eat the Skittle. That's the reward, right? <laughs> but then eventually we got them to where they could actually say, I'm holding a blue one or I'm holding a red one mm. and, and be accurate in the actual color. And we had a little stack of color cards that we created. And I, another one of my kids, a boy, would go for drives with his dad and he would just just name the color and then flip the card over and name the color and flip the card over. And he could do it with 100% accuracy and a stack of cards. My daughter, one time uh, we were playing a game and I said, okay, here's a regular deck of regular cards, playing cards, 52 cards in the deck. Can you just simply say whether it's red or black? She got 51 of 52 accurate. That's mm. way above chance, wow. right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. kids have an uncanny ability to do paranormal, supernatural things that to them are not paranormal and they're not supernatural. They're just normal. <laughs> and they're and they're just natural and they are we only it's only as we get older and crustier and harder and more rigid in our thinking that we think well that's impossible and i remember sitting in class with lynn once and he said you know i've been doing this for years and i still always have a momentary second of panic before i do a session and i think what am i doing this is impossible. I'm trying to describe <laughs> something I can't see, you know, yeah. and, and he, has, he said, I always have that momentary thought, even after all these years. It's so amazing. I, I had been in a slump for like three months, hadn't done a good session at all. Lynn calls me and he says, Lori, I've got this group of people coming in from Japan to do a documentary and they're filming my advanced class. And I was wondering, could you come and help me? 
So I went there to kind of do some wifely duties. I think his wife was out of town or something. So I was there to, you know, to serve drinks and, you know, coffee. I mean, you know, serve tea and coffee and uh, kind of keep everybody entertained while the class was going on and try to help some semblance of control so that Lynn could focus on teaching. And after the class was over, these Japanese men walk up to me and they bowed deeply and they said, would you do us the honor of doing a session for our documentary? Because we know that you are Lynn Buchanan's protege. And I, I said, oh, of course I will. But, if, but at the same time, I was thinking, expletive, 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 <laughs> um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, what am I going to do? I haven't had a good session in three months. And so they said, well, just come tomorrow morning. We're going to film you tomorrow morning. So that night, I mean, I think I spent the whole night in the bathroom. I was just freaked out. And then, <laughs> uh, and then the next day um, I was leaving because I was staying at my husband's parents' house because they live, they live down just really close to Lynn Buchanan at the time. And his mother, my husband's mother looks at me. She goes, you look very nice to be on television. And what are you doing again? I said, well, I've got to describe a picture that's in an envelope that I can't see. She goes, and you can do that? And I said, well, I either can or I can't. And if I can't, it's going to be really embarrassing. And so I got to the thing and had the camera right in my face. They handed me four envelopes and asked me to choose one. I pulled one out of the stack and and they took the rest back. And then meanwhile, they wouldn't let Lynn or the other students anywhere near me. And all these students were people had taken basic from me. So they yeah. were my students too. And they had to stand way far, far away. And I started the session and I described the first thing is I got an ideogram that was my ideogram for female. That was the first ideogram I got. I described this young woman with long brown hair that was dressed in turquoise and red, standing under a flowering, some kind of a flowering biological thing that was pink in a spring-like atmosphere, in a park-like atmosphere that was um, surrounded by sacred ancient buildings. The target was a postcard of a young Maki dressed in a kimono that was turquoise and red with her hair piled up on her head, chopsticks in her hair, standing under a flowering cherry tree in a park that was surrounded by a shrine. It was surrounded by shrine-like buildings, but they weren't in the photo. And that was really exciting for Lynn because he had been telling them that we, the viewers are accessing information from the actual site, the intended site, rather than from a photograph. Because the buildings weren't in the photo, but I described the buildings. And, they, and the guys knew where she, the photo was taken. So they were like, oh, my gosh, she's surrounded by these buildings, just like you described. But right. I, it was such a huge relief for me to nail that target because... I had been in this terrible slump, but the subconscious mind knows the difference when there's something really at stake and when you're just practicing and it can work on other things with you, you know? So it was really so uh, wonderful for me that I didn't miss that target. And Lynn, Lynn told me many stories that were similar where he'd been in slumps, but then when the, the metal rate meets the road and a child's life was at stake or, or the future of the remote viewing program was at stake and he had to do a dog and pony show for the brass that he nailed it each time, you know? So I found that really, really encouraging. I think the subconscious mind can be our best friend and a great partner as we go along, you know, and, but oftentimes we think of it more as an adversarial relationship in our sense of development. It doesn't need to be that way. It can be a very friendly, friendly relationship. So one of the things I remember from the the class that I took, Lori, was it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I didn't even consider this until you brought it up, is that there's a difference between viewing the target and the picture yes. of the target yeah. that's being provided. <laughs> and that people sometimes make that error. And it's a hard thing to differentiate. In particular, the target, uh, which I think you're still using in one of your free classes that, that I uh, worked on, so I won't mention it. But you said, you know, that 
that can happen. So how do you get past like, oh, I'm looking at this picture that's in the envelope in the safe or in the other room or wherever it is versus the pic, I'm looking at what the picture represents. When we teach associative remote viewing, we encourage people to go to the moment of feedback, which is the moment that they get to see the picture in the envelope. That's And the picture in the envelope is known as feedback. So we say, okay, we'll go to the moment of feedback and describe what's in the envelope, right? So all they have to do is mentally move forward through time to that moment when the picture's being pulled out of the envelope. Oh, that's, that's all, all you have, have to do. do. Yeah, just, just go, through just go forward in time. No okay. big deal. <laughs> describe what that picture is. And so therefore they are moving to the photo, right? To the photo that is in the envelope. And that's important for ARV because we want, you know, a lot of times for the different types of ARV that are being taught now, we, we teach a type of sensory ARV, but in the kind of ARV that most people are using, it all has to do with pictures and envelopes. And so if they're not going to describe the picture exactly as it was at the time the photo was taken and the information in that photo, then it's going to screw up the whole experiment with ARV, right? So that's important to go to the photo. Now, when it comes to CRV, we want a lot more flexibility. We don't want to just them to just describe a, a you know a two-dimensional photograph. We want to know what are the sounds at the target? What are the smells at the target? If you're describing an event, what led up to that event? What happened after the event? What were the ramifications of that event? And so you're going to have to move through time, you know, backwards and forwards through time. You're going to have to be able to describe the target in many sensory aspects of it. And you can't do that with a picture in an envelope, right? And so I think it's the nature of the two different types of remote viewing that I'm describing here, ARV and CRV, the difference in the nature and the way they're taught will naturally cause the viewer to either go to the picture in the envelope at the time of feedback or go to the actual target site and describe the target. And when you're going to the actual target site, you're going to get all the things just like you would if you were physically present, right? You're going to get smells and sounds and tastes and shapes and sizes and patterns and positions. You're going to be able to move 50 feet up or 100 feet up. You're going to be able to, you know, move forward three inches, move back five inches, go through time at the target and see what's happening. What's the progression of things at the target? You're unlimited in CRV. And so that's a big difference right there. Um, in extended remote viewing, which is a different type of remote viewing, what you're doing is the viewer is getting into a hypnagogic state where they're really mostly, and, and as a former hypnotist, I can say that you know, you're mostly getting alpha and delta waves, alpha, theta, and delta waves there, and you're, and you're in a more suggestible state. And you're literally being asked by your monitor, who should be a very well-trained hypnotherapist, to have your consciousness move through various levels of depth. There's levels of consciousness. And so you can move up and down through many levels of consciousness, accessing the target at different levels, coming up enough just to report what's going on, going back down and coming up and reporting. And so it's really a fascinating technique with ERV because with ERV, you can read street signs and get names and things like that. And then in my most advanced class, which is CRV for professional viewers, it's called Beyond Advanced CRV for Professional Viewers. In that class, we're hoping that the viewers coming to take that course have now practiced enough. They've gone through basic, intermediate, advanced, maybe even taken my medical applications course, which is also a highly advanced course. And they are going to have, be advanced enough that they have are now to a point where I can teach them to do what I call surfing the quantum wave or toggling the line between ERV and CRV. So you're sitting up, you're writing on a piece of paper, but your mind is really calming down and getting into these various levels 
where you can literally have a bilocation experience. And it's interesting because um, years ago, I heard one teacher say, well, Ingo discouraged bilocation. He didn't want anybody to bilocate because it would be like the lights are on, but nobody's home and they wouldn't answer questions. And CRV is supposed to be a reporting methodology, you know, and interview and report. Well, but then I talked with Tom McNear, who uh, was the first student that Ingo ever taught and is the only student that Ingo taught all stages of CRV2. And uh, he said, no, Ingo loved bilocation, but true bilocation is when you're sitting in the chair, writing on your paper, and part of you is 100% at the target. There's 100% of you sitting at the table writing on the paper, and simultaneously 100% of you is at the target reporting on what's going on. And that's the true definition of bilocation. So when people said Ingo discouraged bilocation, no, Ingo discouraged you getting so wrapped up in the target that you were no longer aware of sitting at the table and writing on the paper. But the trick for a true world-class remote viewer who is very well-trained and experienced is to toggle that line and be writing and reporting at the same time that you're 100% of the target at you know just taking in all that information. I was working on a kidnapping case where I literally was interviewing a man who was a guard of the kidnapped victims. And I discovered there was a whole bunch of victims, not just the one person. And that guard gave me the name of the group that was he was working for that was doing the kidnapping in a foreign language. I got the name and I thought, okay, this is probably my overactive imagination, but it felt so real that I turned it in. And the investigating officers had never heard of the group, and this all was in a foreign country, they investigated, and sure enough, that group by that name did exist right where the man was kidnapped, and they found out later that that was the group that had kidnapped. Was that guard compliant, or you were just accessing information with uh, against his will like that? Well, you know what? It wasn't against his will because his will wasn't involved. <laughs> I hope I can say that. Uh-huh. Um, it was more like subconscious to subconscious, you can tap in, and, and so I don't think he was ever consciously aware that it was happening. But he was actually a very nice guy who really believed in the cause of this group and therefore was able to justify, you know, anything. Because when you really like Patty Hearst, you know, when you Mm -hmm. get sucked into something strong enough, then you become a believer in the cause enough that you set aside your own morals and and stuff to say, well, no, the cause, you know, the the outcome and the cause is, is strong enough that I think we should go ahead and kidnap people to get this accomplished. You know, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you get sucked into a cult or, right. you know, a strong belief system. Um, it reminds me of something that Pat Price supposedly said about targets and that the more something is hidden, the more it brightly shines in the psychic world. Yeah, the more of a secret it is. Right. The, the more that it kind of stands out. It shines like a beacon in psychic space. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on controlled remote viewing. A very special thanks to Lori Williams for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. S-T-I-C-K. F-R-E-A-K. C-L-A-N-G. W-R-I-C-K. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. 
But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.